This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. On this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best, as we monitor the situation in the Middle East and around the globe. Former governor of the Bank of Israel weighs in on the impact of the war. Really, there is a state of shock. Citigroup Chair John Dugan as the situation unfolds. We focus most on our people in the ground. IMF's Gita Gopinath. Suppose oil prices they went up by around 10%. Then about 12 months later, you see inflation going up by around 0.4 percentage points. And in U.S. politics, former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan says a coming presidential race could be a shocker. I can tell you it's going to be the most interesting and wild ride we've ever seen. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week, powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. Ed, it's an understatement, certainly, to say this weekend that investors are keeping a close eye on developments in the Middle East and around the globe. Yeah, absolutely, Denise, and that's especially true in the world of finance, as bankers try to second-guess the future direction of geopolitics. And we had a chance, Ed, to get an inside perspective on all this with the chair of Citigroup, talking about John Dugan. Uh, He was on the sidelines of the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank in Marrakesh, Morocco, on Bloomberg Brief. Now, Dugan also talks about Citi's plans to simplify the company through restructuring and what it means for costs and headcount. So just a lot of stress right now. CEO Jane Frazier has been working on cost-cutting for sure. Yeah, she sure has. And we'll take a look as well with Dugan on how clients are being impacted by all this. Plus, the bank is ramping up the effort to deal with increasing regulatory changes. They sure are. And here's our Francine Lacroix now with Dugan on all of this. Let's listen in. It seems like the world is fractured geopolitics, economically. It's very difficult for leaders to almost get on the same page, get along and find a solution. After the horrific weekend that we've had, and what does all of this mean for a big global bank like Citigroup? Well, first of all, uh, it means we focus most on our people in the ground in Israel, this senseless act of violence by the terrorists. and our hearts go out to our people and we stand by our people. Um, but that is our biggest, most important focus. And of course, we're monitoring and continuing to serve our clients, but it's our people on the ground that are first and foremost. Could it change actually the, the, the world economy as we see this potentially escalating? Well, we certainly hope not. We're watching it closely. And of course, it's already affected oil prices and commodity prices. <clears throat> But I think we're all just going to have to see how much this expands or not over time. Um, We are in the ground in the region and uh, other places in the world. And so far, it is pretty contained to where where the conflict has been. And uh, that's certainly what we hope continues. John, when you look at what your CEO has been putting in place, restructuring the kind of the the big changes that Citigroup is, is going through, where do you end up in one, two years in terms of the bank? So this is something that uh, Jane has been very thoughtful about and decisive since her very first time on the job. We had our investor day very soon after she started and really laid out this vision for simplifying the bank. It had already been on a path like that, but to really much more simplify the bank and to do, starting out with divestitures of our non 
U.S. consumer businesses, which we had all, all over the world, particularly in Asia, and that's well along now. And then secondly, in spending a good bit of time transforming our risk and controls and the operations and technology, supporting them, mm -hmm. um, and really getting that underway. And this is the, what I would describe as the third leg of that stool of change to simplify the company, and it follows from the other two. So for example, by getting rid of and having divesting all these non-US consumer businesses, we don't need the same significant geographic managerial layers that otherwise were there, so it's getting rid of those. Um, and likewise, bringing the core businesses closer to Jane. So in two years, and I'm getting, I am getting to the answer to your question, um, in a couple of years, I think we believe it'll be a much simpler bank. Right. Um, our expenses will go down, our revenues will go up as a result of being simpler, for, simpler. And I think you'll really, despite this great investment in what we're doing in the transformation, those costs will begin starting to come down at is the end a, of next year. Is there a little bit of a bumpy road? I know you've also, for example, put, put you know, sold a, a big chunk of uh, a China unit to HSBC. Does that impact your ability to service clients in, no. in the shorter term? No, not at all. Um, in fact, that's a very smooth transition that we're going through. And we, these, we've had now coming on nine closings of non-US consumer businesses. I'm pleased to say those have all gone very smoothly. Um, and we've gotten good premiums for the ones that have closed. And then in some other cases, we've had to do, engage in wind downs of the business. China's one of them. But this marks the ability to smoothly sell a chunk of the business. So I'd say all of that's going very well. And our business that remains behind, which is our core institutional business that we have all over the world, that's operating very smoothly, and this is not, in fact, it's making it easier uh, rather than more difficult. Because of the changes in restructuring, do you have a final number of job cuts? No, no, we don't. I think uh, one of the interesting things about Jane is she's quite decisive about the direction she wants to go, but she's also very specific about doing it in the right sequence. Mm -hmm. This is not about hitting a number. It's about making sure we get the roles right to simplify the company, to, to get the most efficient business that we can get out of this. Those numbers will come over time, but they're going to, they're, we're not targeting a particular number at this time. So because of changing U.S. regulation, Basel, again, what are some of the changes that, that you'll have to go through? Well, the most significant thing with Basel and what's going on in the United St States is a proposal to significantly increase capital requirements for the largest banks that, I will say somewhat bizarrely, is a response to problems that happened with regional banks in March. Um, we believe that it is an unwarranted proposed increase, and not only because it causes us to have to hold more capital, but we believe it really will have a material impact on the amount of lending that U.S. companies can do generally, which is not a good thing when the economy is in more or less a precarious position, even though remarkably resilient. And it also pushes more activity, lending, and inter financial intermediation out of the banking system and into non-banks. And we don't think that's a good thing. We don't think it's a necessary thing. Uh, our banks, our largest banks, including Citi, are very strong from a safety and soundness perspective in terms of capital levels, liquidity levels. And this is just unwarranted to have this huge excess 
amount of capital. What are Citigroup's own relationships with regulators, um, of course, given what's happened a couple of years ago with some of the consent orders? Uh, I, you know, look, uh, I think we spend a lot of time trying to maintain a very constructive relationship with our regulators. Um, and I think, uh, I can't put words into, into their mouths, but I think they believe we are doing our utmost to comply with the rules and the consent orders that we're operating under. But ultimately, what they want to see and what we must deliver are results, execution results. We believe we are, and people will see that over time, but that's really what the core of the relationship is about. You see a lot of volatile markets. You see the cost of credit going up. There's worries about financial conditions getting even tighter. Is there anything that, that you see as, as odd in terms of market behavior right now or something that you worry about? Um, you know, from our position, I think we feel pretty good about our risk profile and the mm -hmm. amount of capital and liquidity we have on the one hand and the risks that we choose to take, which are really pretty prudent at this point. We're not heavily exposed to the commercial real estate business. We did not have uh, interest rate sensitivity that caused us to lose a lot of money when rates went up significantly. So I think we as a bank are positioned really quite well. Mm -hmm. But of course, we're always watching markets. We see what's going on in the 10-year treasury going up to at significant levels. And we watch our credit card portfolio, which is enormous, for signs of what will happen to the consumer. We're seeing some cracks in the spending levels, and yet still very robust spending levels. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't say there's anything extraordinary at the moment, but we, of course, are watching. John, thank you so much for your time today. That was John Dugan, chair of Citigroup with Bloomberg's Francine Lacqua on the sidelines of the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank in Marrakesh, Morocco on Bloomberg Brief. And coming up... We'll take a look at how events in the Middle East are being viewed by more of those with their eye on the global economy. Including IMF First Deputy Managing Director Gita Gopinath on the impact on the global economy. She says she's watching events very closely. Plus, we'll hear from a former governor of the Bank of Israel on what it all means and how she thinks the central bank there should be handling things. And we'll be checking in with former Maryland governor Larry Hogan about global tension and the political fight at home as well. He says at Watch for 2024 and the presidential race to be a real shocker. Hmm. And also... PepsiCo is promising to evolve along with consumer tastes as a growing number of people turn to weight loss drugs instead of snacks. And it's all coming up for you here. And you are listening to Bloomberg Best. is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, a lot of focus right now on the tragic loss of life as a war in the Middle East unfolds. Yeah, and really shocking levels of global tension in some places right now. It is just so difficult on so many levels. Yeah, it is. And investors are also keeping a close eye on the impact as these difficult incoming headlines rock the global economy. And we had a chance to talk about all this with IMF First Deputy Managing Director Gita Gopinath. She says she's watching events very, very closely. Yeah, now Gopinath spoke with us on the sidelines of the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank in Marrakesh, Morocco on Bloomberg's The Pulse with Francine Lacroix. Here's Francine now with Gopinath. 
there's a lot going on, especially geopolitics that really ha have taken everyone and, and shocked to the world uh, on, on both sides. What do these mean for the world economy or for countries in the region can, that could be particularly vulnerable? Firstly, pleasure to join you as always, Francine. It's a terrible human tragedy what's happening, the Israel-Gaza conflict. In terms of the economic implications, it's a little early because we have to see how this conflict unfolds and that causes oil prices to go up. That does have an effect on the economies. When you look at the numbers, suppose oil prices say went up by around 10%, then about 12 months later you see inflation going up by around 0.4 percentage points. Global output is lower by about 0.15 percentage points. So it can have uh, these kinds of effects, but again, it's too early. To, to tell exactly what's going to happen, because we're still in very early stages at this point. Are there any countries though, that you see as particularly vulnerable? So we're talking about maybe Egypt or others that you're monitoring closely or closer than others. I mean, countries in the region, like you said, are going to be more directly affected than the others. But if you look at what happens in terms of the effect on energy prices, that yeah. can become very widespread. And that's usually the, one of the big channels through which we see that affecting global numbers. Do you think there's complacency amongst leaders in general about what kind of quality economic growth they get? I, you know, it depends on the country. We're seeing all kinds of uh, countries in different places. In terms of our forecast, for instance, we have the U.S. doing well in terms of resilience, euro area, some countries in there, we've had downgrades. China, we've had downgrades. India, we've had an upgrade. So it's varying in different parts of the world. I think it's important for all governments to realize that we are in an environment of high debt, record high debt, very high interest rates that are going to stay high for a while. And therefore, it's very important to prioritize your spending, make sure that your revenues are keeping up with your spending needs, because it's not going to be that cheap to be able to finance just through debt. Uh, there, there's a lot of, I guess, markets that believe central banks are almost, you know, one and done, if not done yet. And it was interesting in your economic outlook and saying you have to make sure that inflation is under control. Is this the biggest risk to the global economy, that the central banks think they've won the battle before it's actually over? I think central banks have done a good job in terms of raising rates uh, sufficiently to be able to bring inflation down. So the question is not so much about whether they need to raise rates more. I think in many countries, the question is about staying tight for a long time. It's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight, that bringing inflation back to target. So while there's been good progress made on inflation, the job is not done. And therefore, we are emphasizing that it's important for central banks to keep their eye on the data calibrate appropriately, but make sure that you're bringing inflation back down to target. Uh, when you look at the world economy and analyze it, uh, financial conditions, of course, is a big component of it. Do, do you look at the cost of credit and financial conditions, or do you have preferred indicators? We look at many indicators. We look at credit growth. We look at risk spreads. We look at different forms of pricing of risk. What has been interesting is that despite this very sharp increase in interest rates that we've seen, we haven't seen major risk-off events around the world, especially if you look at spillovers to large emerging markets. That has not been the case. I think they also deserve credit for having developed stronger a policy toolkit over the last couple of decades. So financial conditions have tightened. We saw some disorderly action back in March. Things are better now. But with interest rates at the levels that they are now, I, again, we can't there's no room for complacency. You have to make sure supervision and regulation is up to speed.
That's Gita Gopanath, first Deputy Managing Director of the IMF from the sidelines of the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank in Marrakesh, Morocco, on The Pulse with Francine Lacroix. And Ed, we also heard from Karnit Fluk, former governor of the Bank of Israel and also currently vice president of research at the Israel Democracy Institute in Jerusalem. Now, she tells Bloomberg's Danny Berger and Manis Cranny, tough times are definitely ahead. Let's listen in. Well, I think currently, uh, really, there is a state of shock and terrible sorrow about the horrors that we see on television, the massacre that took place in our communities near the border. And there is a great concern about what's coming. There is a great uncertainty about the unfolding of the war. I would say that the only silver lining is seeing Israel is really mobilized and coming together, volunteering on every front, including to reserve duty. Mm -hmm. So this is really the state of affairs right now and great Mm -hmm. uncertainty. Look, I I know you also started your career at the IMF. What does Israel need from the global community? I would say first that right now for Israelis, the state of the economy and the economic consequences are not what is on, on the mind of Israelis. Now, I think what we do need is uh, is support. I think what we've seen in the speech by President Biden was really heartwarming in terms of uh, the support for Israel at this very, very difficult time on all fronts. We're trying to understand what happens next. Uh, I, I don't think anybody really has a full grasp of that. I now want you to turn and try and put in perspective economically the the impact. We don't know how long this this war will endure, but from Israel's perspective, how much risk is there now to the economy? How much risk is there to the outlook? Well, if we look back at uh, previous wars, you know, the economy will probably uh, have a big blow, but at least in the past, it had recovered very, uh, I would say, rapidly and strongly. Uh, But of course, uh, the extent of the damage to the economy will depend on how things unfold and how long this war uh, will be and how broad it will be. So we will see definitely a very sharp decline in some sectors. Uh, First of all, tourism, private consumption, investment, and some of these effects are prolonged. Uh, so, uh, you know, if we look at back mm-hmm. at the uh, Second Lebanon War, uh, there was a very sharp decline in the last quarter of 2006, but then an as stronger recovery by the next quarter. But it's very hard to say, wh- you know, whether what we're going to go through now will be of the same order of magnitude. The, the number of reservists that have been uh, drafted is uh, much, much large, and we don't know the scale of the war that is coming. Professor Flug, earlier in the year, we did have those in the right-wing government that did assail the current Bank of Israel governor, Amir Yaron. His term comes to an end in December. How important is it in this moment of unknowingness, of war, of necessary stability that he stays on? I very much hope he stays on. I think that would be the best demonstration that the government wants a strong and independent central bank. So I think that could be a very important step to demonstrate that. 
And that was Karnit Fluke, former governor of the Bank of Israel and currently vice president of research at the Israel Democracy Institute in Jerusalem with Bloomberg's Danny Berger and Manis Cranny. And you can hear more from our Bloomberg Talks podcast. And coming up... Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan about political instability abroad and at home. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Ed, as we track the really difficult events in the Middle East, also in the U.S., not easy either. And around the globe this weekend, we had a chance to check in with former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. So here's Hogan about Israel and other global crises and also about turmoil in U.S. politics and his own political future in a newsmaker event with our own Mario Parker, White House and politics team leader. Let's listen in. This takes place at a, at a very uh, somber time, right? We've been following very closely the developments in Israel. Uh, we know that you have had a warm relationship with the country. You led a trade delegation there. It's been one of Maryland's top trade partners as well. You signed the executive order prohibiting companies who, are, who have boycotted the country uh, from doing business with the state. You've also spoken at the Republican Jewish Coalition. I want to start and give you an opportunity to kind of chime in on on your thoughts on how you see everything unfolding. I think we've all been glued to the news and trying to get as much information as we can. It's just a horrific situation, the brutality of uh, some of these terrorist acts with innocent uh, women and children and elderly people being dragged off or being killed is just, uh, it's hard to fathom. Uh, I think this is a very uh, dangerous time in the Middle East and a very volatile situation, but I think we've got to be unequivocal. Um, I think the U.S. Uh, has to stand with Israel against these terrorist acts. Um, they are our, our greatest ally, and I think it's very important for America not to show weakness, uh, for us to make sure that, we, that our allies know that we're going to stand with them and that our enemies know that we're going to stand up to them. And uh, so we're watching it very, very closely. Our prayers are with the, the people there in Israel. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think this is a time for politics. I think this is a time for us to come together uh, the way they are in Israel and, uh, and fight a common en- enemy. Yeah, and you're obviously a, a big fan of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan had this great relationship with Tip O'Neill. I mean, is that even possible again in Washington? Well, some people, you know, I, I, I'm an old guy, so I, I you know, say I, I look back to the past. But I, I was a, I was a uh, chairman of Youth for Reagan. I was a Reagan delegate, and I think, you know, Reagan's not only his doctrine of peace through strength. Reagan did stand up for our allies and stand up to our enemies. So I think Reagan's the Reagan doctrine, Reagan policy, <clears throat> is really pertinent right now with the issues we're having around the world. But also his leadership on kind of uniting people and being willing to work across the aisle to find common ground and to compromise. He's a perfect example of, uh, you know, he and Tip O'Neill had passionate disagreements. Republicans and Democrats had issues that they uh, really disagreed on. 
but they never were disagreeable. And they sat down together and they tried to hammer out compromise, which I think is what's really missing and lacking in today's environment, something I believe very passionately in. I was a uh, Republican governor in the bluest state in America. I uh, worked for eight years getting things done with a legislative body that was, you know, 70, 75% progressive Democrats in both houses, and yet we came together with a whole host of common sense bipartisan solutions. It's exactly what should be happening in Washington. You know, we're just 30 miles down the road as our state capital of Annapolis, and we sort of showed that it was possible. Um, but this, this uh, Congress continues to uh, show that they can't work together and can't get things done. And frankly, you know, I'm, I started out saying my party's in disarray in Congress, but it's, it's really, you know, both parties. You know, that's why 70% of the people in America are just completely frustrated with Democrats and Republicans. They believe that Washington is broken, that our entire political system is uh, dysfunctional. And, uh, and what they really want is what we were able to deliver next door in Maryland. They want their elected leaders, regardless of their party affiliation, to sit down and work together on solving the real problems that people are concerned about, that are facing the nation and facing all of us. Now, you've been out front for the better part of the last year, year and a half, uh, with these type of statements where you're willing to criticize both your own party, but then also Democrats as well. I think I've been doing that since I first got involved in politics and ran for governor in 2014, not just a year and a half. I mean, I've been pretty outspoken, and I usually call them like I see them. I mean, sometimes I'll take on when I think when I think uh, Democrat policy, Democratic leaders are in the wrong, I, I say so. When I think the Republican leaders are in the wrong, I say so. And I think, uh, I think that's probably why people appreciate me, whether they agree with me or not. They, they know where I'm coming from, and they know that I'm going to you know, say exactly what I think. Yeah. And now your father, I mean, he was uh, famously, he, gave, he delivered the speech uh, about impeaching Nixon, yeah, uh, the first Republican to do so. How does that guide you in this moment? Well, I was, a, I was in high school at the time. It, uh, I, I learned a lot about integrity and public service from my dad. He was a he was a Republican on the House Judiciary Committee. Listen, um, we're coming up this spring. It'll be 50 years. It's hard to believe. That, you know, that's, that's how long ago it is. But it's very relevant today, uh, given some of the concerns that we have. Uh, we don't have a lot of leaders like, like that anymore. We need some. Uh, but my, uh, my dad was uh, a Nixon supporter, campaigned with him, uh, thought he was doing a good job as president, fought back when he thought the Democrats were being partisan or he fought to make sure that they could provide for the defense, that they could cross-examine witnesses. But after seeing the evidence, he made the decision and came out with a speech that said uh, the president was guilty of impeachable offenses and should be removed from office. And shortly after that, the president resigned. Uh, it, it was, uh, he, he famously said, you know, in a very passionate speech, uh, no man is above the law, not even the president of the United States. Uh, and uh, we just stand for the rule of law and not the common uh, frailties of men. And in March, when you penned your op-ed uh, saying that you weren't going to run, right, the dynamics were much different. Uh, at the time, Trump had a narrow elite, narrower lead over the field. DeSantis had yet to declare, and even some hypothetical polls had him leading. Are you changing your mind at all? Will you run for president? You know, back in March, I made the tough decision because, you know, I left as uh, you know, the, I think the top governor in America in a very hostile environment uh, where it was difficult to get things done, but we did. Um, I think I had the, the uh, had proven the uh, the best ability to win swing voters, 
uh, independents and Democrats and soft Republicans. It, I thought it was a very difficult path through the Republican primary, and I didn't want to have a repeat of 2016 um, where we had a multi-car pileup, and that's exactly what is happening, 11 candidates. If there were one strong candidate, they might be at 50% right now, but they're not. There's 10 or 11 or 12. Uh, so it's exactly what I was afraid was going to happen is happening. I'm very glad I made that, that decision, um, even though it was a hard one to make. I think it was the right one for the right reason. I, my goal is to get someone other than Donald Trump, and I didn't think I was going to be able to contribute to that by just being in there with all these other guys. I think I'd be in the same spot, all the rest of them, in a single digit somewhere struggling for attention. Um, I said at that time uh, that um, I just never ruled out. I didn't close the door on this other thing. It's not something I'm pursuing. It's not something I'm working toward. It's not something I've decided to do. It's not why I was involved in no labels. Uh, but you know, if, if, if the country is in that bad a shape next spring and those are the two nominees and it looks like there's a path, I would have no interest in being a spoiler. I don't want to run a race to nibble around the edges. If, if I thought there was a path to success to win the race, then um, I just said I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't shut the door to that opportunity. And how are you feeling now? I'm feeling more confused than ever. <laughs> it sounds like you may be leaning towards it. No, nah, I don't know about that. Don't be pushing me now. Come on. I mean, you just ticked <laughs> off a bunch of metrics. Yeah. Swing st uh, blue state, getting elected, dealing with a, a myriad of issues that are a microcosm to what's facing the country. Yeah. And then, again, the, the, the heroism that we spoke about earlier with your father, I just don't understand what, what the hesitation would be. Well, I, again, I'm trying to beat Donald Trump in a primary, and I'm still hopeful that the Democrats can come up with somebody other than Joe Biden. And we still have a long way to see. We won't know that until Super Tuesday next March. Uh, in the meantime, I'm just continuing to try to be a voice of reason. Um, I, I, don't have, I don't have a need to be in elective office myself, but I do care very deeply about getting... Republican Party back on track, and I care very deeply about the, the country being in a really difficult spot right now. So however I can serve, I'm still trying to figure that out, but I'm not, I'm not walking away, and I'm not willing to give up, and it's just, it's just too important. And you've been listening to former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan in a fireside chat with Bloomberg's Mario Parker, our White House and politics team leader. And you can hear more on our Bloomberg Talks podcast. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And coming up at our diet drugs taking a bite out of profits for snack food makers. You are listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, you know how Ozempic, Wigovi, and other weight loss drugs may be slimming the bottom line for some companies because people are buying fewer high-calorie snacks and other food. Right. That's the word we're certainly hearing from some uh, retailers, food makers, and also uh, some grocery stores. So Bloomberg's Matt Miller and John Ehrlichman, well, they caught up with the CFO of PepsiCo. And they asked Hugh Johnston if the food, snack, and beverage maker is getting indigestion over diet drugs. Yeah, and uh, Johnston says the answer is no. Check this out. So far, we can't detect it in our numbers at all. You know, I, I, I recognize that there, there's obviously a lot of speculation, particularly in the market, on, on the implications of these drugs. That, and we're studying it closely, as you would expect us to. The only things I, I would offer are uh, there's some real barriers to, to consumption here, right? N number one, that the, the form of, of the dose is an injectable, which obviously is something that people have to get over. Uh, number two, they're, they're quite expensive, which suggests that it's probably going to take a while for adoption to get, to get pretty broad. 
and I know there are other forms that that are being looked at, pills and the like, but from what I understand, those are a, a higher dosage of the active ingredient, which may lead to, to further side effects as well. So I, the point of it is, I think the adoption will likely be pretty slow on this. And the result is, as consumers sort of migrate their, their eating habits, we'll migrate with them. I don't think snacking is going away. People like snacking for a variety of reasons. It gives them an energy boost in the afternoon. Uh, it's a social, there's a social element to it. So I think snacking will continue. But much like we did with zero sugar soda, as people wanted to have less sugar in their diet, to the degree they want to evolve their forms of snacking, I'm pretty sure we're going to be right there with I, them. I, you know, first of all, I love snacking also, obviously, and I'm a huge fan of the munching through a few bags of Frito-Lays. But if I want to aim towards healthier products, what, are, what is your greatest hope um, in terms of, you know, uh, something in the pipeline. What, what do you think is going to be um, the biggest hit as, as the world attempts at least to move towards healthier consumption? Yeah, I, I think it'll be actually a lot of smaller changes rather than sort of a, a, a big hit. Uh, you know, I, I think as people decide to migrate more towards protein, you'll see us add protein in, into products to the degree they want more whole grains. We certainly are capable of doing that. To the degree they want reduced fat, that's something that that's well within our reach. Reduced sodium, certainly also well within our reach. So, you know, the the R and D capability that we've built in PepsiCo on food is really second to none. And as a result of that, I've got confidence we'll be able to evolve the products, and then taking that and combine it with the great brands that we have, and combine it with the great distributions and customer relationships that we have. I'm I'm fairly certain we can evolve through all of this. The other piece of it is it, it's one potential risk or one potential headwind, but there's so many tailwinds attached to this company as well. The fact that people are busy and they're likely to want to destructure meals even more. All of the growth opportunities in our international markets that represent per capita consumption opportunities, we haven't even remotely tapped into the potential of yet. I, I do think it's it's perhaps being a little overread right now as, opposed, as sort of a, a single variable that's going to uh, affect the company when there are so many positives here. I think in this inflationary environment, knowing where we're gonna be in a year's time has also been very challenging. Uh, but you were asked on your conference call just on the inflationary front and some of that commodity inflation about uh, the guidance that you provided. And I, I believe you, you provided some context on your own buying, almost sort of looking ahead upwards of nine months and sort of how that, how that works for your business. Can you just clarify that for the audience? Yeah, I'm happy to. So the, this was something we put into place a good number of years ago. Uh, when Shortly after I took over as CFO, we, we made the decision that we want to buy commodities out in advance by, by about nine months on average. It varies a bit from commodity to commodity. And the reason that we do that is not that we're trying to guess the market, but rather we're trying to give our internal salespeople as well as our customers certainty in terms of our costs that's what gave us the, the confidence to give the guide into next year because we've got pretty good visibility into our costs well into next summer. That was Hugh Johnston, CFO at PepsiCo. And Johnston there with Bloomberg's Matt Miller and John Ehrlichman. And that is it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And this is Bloomberg. Now stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. 